Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here. And, uh, you know, I always have that problem when I get up to speak. You see, some people start to clap, other people stand, they don't know what to do. Is he a real rabbi? <laughs> and the answer is no. But um, before I begin, uh, most important, and that is the Rub asked me to announce that the Shira this evening is Le'ile uh, Nishmois uh, Mariam Barta Bas Lea Netzar Abraham uh, Netzar Ben Abraham Vesara Yair Netzar Ben Abraham Vitsipara. And uh, the Shia should uh, should mean Aliyah for them. Um, I may have told the story in Chazak before, and uh, the story was really almost designed for Chazak. Uh, uh, this fellow did some bad things and he gets to Shemayim and they say listen you're going to have to spend some time down there so uh, I thought they did that on purpose (laughs) 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 Rabbi can you crouch down a little (laughs) Um, so uh, uh, you have to spend some time down there he says "Uh, well what do I do he says well it's not like the old days you get a choice everything today is a choice you can go to uh, French Gehenna, American Gehenna, or Israeli Gehenna. And I tell the story? It's a good story. doesn't matter. It's good to hear it again. Anyway, so he says, what's French Gehenna? French Gehenna, during the day you walk along the boulevards, and you eat in cafes, and you go to the ballet, and at midnight they put you in the most boiling hot water, and you stay there till the morning. He says, it sounds terrible. He says, oh, it is. So what's America again? America again, you go to shopping malls, you go to baseball games, you go out to eat in nice restaurants, and at midnight they put you in the most boiling hot water and you stay there until the morning. He says, it sounds terrible. He says, oh, it is. So what's Israeli again? Israeli again, you get up early in the morning and you work at a kibbutz and you pick apples, and then for lunch you get a pizza at 11, and at midnight they put you in the most boiling hot water and you stay there until the morning. He says, so why would anyone take the Israeli again? Well, midnight's not really midnight. The water's not so hot. If you don't like 11, you can have a schnitzel. You know? <laughs> so we're in American Gehenna, uh, Israeli Gehenna right now, because the shear started 25 minutes ago. So uh, we're almost done. He was like, oh, when he speaks, it seems to go so quickly. That's right. But anyway, so, uh, so we're starting a little late. But uh, listen, it's Jewish time. It's Jewish time. I have to say Jewish time, depending on, obviously, which types of Jews. You know, I... Uh, I, I spoke in a shul in Muncie um, for uh, Jews of German descent. They have a different way of telling time. Hasidim have a different time of telling time, you know. Uh, they tell about a, uh, a German Jew who says to his wife, I'm going to be home late for my tonight. They start saying, So it's going to take me a little longer, you get it? You know? But uh, whereas Hasidim have a different way of telling time, you know. So this, uh, this boy, this Yekisha boy, marries a Hasidish girl. And they have to decide on the time of the wedding. So they decide it's going to be exactly one hour late. You understand? Know like, to the minute, you know? <laughs> one hour late, but to the minute, you know? So, so uh, in any event, um, I, uh, I have to say this is my first time in the shul. Um, the Rav mentioned that we, we did an event before in Kew Garden Hills. And with Chazak, it's usually in Forest Hills. Uh, this, is, this is my 10th time together with them and uh, we always do it in Forest Hills and this time they said we would do it either in Kew Garden Hills or in Kew Gardens and they decided Kew Gardens because they thought that Kew Garden Hills had too much parking so uh, 
We wanted to make you feel like you were in Forest Hills. In fact, some of the people in Kew Garden Hills just parked and walked because it didn't even pay to try, you know. There were certain people who were supposed to be in the show who were still circling around, you know, up and down Lefferts Boulevard, waiting for somebody to die and have their car <laughs> taken away. But, you know, it's... So, uh, Kew Garden and Forest Hills have that myla that, uh, you know, it, it encourages exercise. So, that's good. In any event, so... Uh, uh, I appreciate everybody coming, you know, and, uh, you know, I know that we had to leave a little extra time, you know, and, and uh, it's difficult to, to find a spot, but such a beautiful shul, such a beautiful venue, and such wonderful people, and uh, um, one more story, this is all my introductory stories, yeah. Um, the Panavija Rav came to America to, um, to, uh, to speak to spread Torah and to raise money. All of those things go hand in hand, by the way. Um, and uh, that's why Chazak asked me if I could mention, sort of subtly, you know, that we'd like you all to give them money. So I'd like to subtly mention, please give Chazak money. Okay. On the subject, uh, by the way, uh, afterwards I have uh, DVDs and CDs that are for sale. Uh, somebody came over and said, are these for free? I said, Spartan, give them away for free. Ashkenazim, sell them. So... <laughs> There's money in them, Dark Hills. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so the Punisher Ruff came to America and he gave his whole drusha in New York. And he has, he has one stump speech. That's how it works. You know, you, you move along one stump speech. So he gave his speech in New York and then he gets on a train, you know, and traveled to Detroit. Everybody travels by train, you know. And he gets to Detroit and he's in the shul and they introduce him and he looks and there's somebody sitting in the front row who had just been in his shir yesterday in New York. He's like, oh, hey, what are the odds of that? But the Panavijarov, being the Panavijarov, he put together another shear on the spot. Nobody could tell the difference. And uh, gave another shear. And everybody was just as amazed. But this fellow comes up afterwards and says, you know, Rav, I heard you speak last night in New York. I was so impressed, I traveled all the way to Detroit to hear it again. <laughs> I'm so disappointed you changed it. <laughs> Now, of course, back then there weren't uh, recorders and there weren't, you know, uh, MP3 players and, you know, and all these devices that you record anything on, you know. So uh, I, I spoke this afternoon in the Five Towns and a number of people said, are you going to say the same thing tonight? Because if so, I won't bother coming. Not like the guy in Detroit, yeah. So because we taped it, we can listen to it again, you know, you can listen as many times as you want. So I said, okay, so I'll give something a little different. Obviously, the theme remains the same. Yeah, I have this chus to go twice a week to a shir by Rav Shapiro, and you know you hear some of the same ideas being repeated. And one of the Talmidim said to me, because an artist has only so many colors, but he can paint endless pictures with them. And there's only so many different ideas, but you can move them around in different ways so that they create really different pictures. So we're going to be doing a different one, but certain things remain the same, and that is it is Elul. Elul is a very important time, and it's just too early this year. It's killing the whole summer. August is not the time to do tshuva. August is the time to collect the averas that we're going to do tshuva for later. It's so depressing. These poor kids go to camp. They show up at camp. Boom, it's the three weeks. They can't listen to music. You know, they can uh, you know, it's a little bit, then bam, you go into the nine days. You know, Ashkenazim don't, uh, 
Ashkenazim don't uh, shower or go swimming, you know, the, the whole nine days, you know. So in our camp, though, you couldn't not let the kids go swimming for nine days. So they said, you're allowed to go for swim instruction. We had six periods of swim instruction a day during the nine days, you know. Then you come to Arab Tishabab, then you come to Tishabab itself, and everyone has to sit on the floor in the gym and watch their feet go numb. So they keep switching positions and switching positions, you know. And eventually they show a, a video and, uh, you know, you get through it, you know. And then comes Chatzot, and that's it. Now it's all over. You can go swimming. When I was a kid in camp one year, they had us all put on our bathing suits and gather around the pool. And on the loudspeaker, they had a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Yay! Baruch Hashem, they finally burnt down that base on Mikdash. We can go swim at it. We all jumped in the pool. We were so happy for three weeks. And in the beginning of August, they blow shelter. Elul. Time to do tshuva. The books of life and death are being opened. Color war! <laughs> you mean it's not out? No, no, it's out. Whoever does the best tshuva wins ten points. <laughs> so it really thumbs out the whole... The, it really should start September 1st. That's when Elo should go. Kids start school. We have, we have Elo, we move through. You know, it goes like that. But forget about it. Everything is so early. You know, I, I told the story that uh, I do a trip to um, uh, Europe on Thanksgiving weekend. So I've gone to Prague, and I've gone to Venice, you know, and uh, Mrs. Barron is here, and Barron goes with, with us, you know. Now, I, I don't do anything, I should point this out, and I'm speaking not just about these trips, but just in general. I, I don't do anything. When they introduce you as a world-famous speaker, that means a man with no job. I just hope you realize that, you know. But, uh, you know, so I basically go, well, I don't, what for? You know, they pay up Crone before he does a trip. You know, he studies up and he researches and I don't do any of that, you know. They have a tour guide. They have a rub who really knows this stuff, you know. Why do they bring me along? And, and I said, what are you putting me in the air for? What am I doing there? They said, because when people see your picture, they'll know they're going to have fun. And I said, that's about right, you know, because I, I don't do, they want me to do Krakow, and I said, I have to go to Auschwitz, I don't, I don't do that, that's not my idea, let's go to some place where there's a nice hotel, we bring in a caterer, we look at some nice shawls, and we shop, you know what I mean, and, and I give some shiur, and that's, that's a great trip, you know, but, uh, but we do it every Thanksgiving, and they said, wait a second, but this year at Thanksgiving is first night Hanukkah, so what are we supposed to do? So the director said, we'll go to Greece. <laughs> we'll get in the holiday spirit, you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, your, your, your pantheon is falling down. <laughs> that should do it. Anyway, so, uh, so everything is very early. And the problem is that it is very hard to go into Rosh Hashanah without an elo to prepare for it. If you're not prepared, what are you supposed to do? I may have told this story before. It's a, it's a famous story, but, but, uh, but it's an important one. Yeah? Uh, the Duke of Maga tells the story about a poor man who worked very hard just to buy his, his family dry bread. And one time he's in a nice part of town, and there's a big, big window, and he sees this wealthy fellow sitting at his dining room table with a little silver pillow on a little velvet pillow, and he rings the bell, and someone brings him fish. 
and he rings the bell, they take it away, they bring him soup, and he rings the bell, they take it away, they bring him meat, potatoes, vegetables, he rings the bell, they take it away, they bring him coffee and tea and, and dessert. And the guy says, this is unbelievable, I never realized this. And he sells everything he has and he buys a little silver bell. And he tells his children, come, come around the table tonight, we're going to eat fish, we're going to eat soup, and meat. And he rings the bell, nothing happens. And he brings it back and he says, the bell is broken. So I rang it, nobody came. He says, the bell is just a siman. You ring the bell, so then the person who you paid, you know, to prepare the food, and you paid for the food, and he set everything up, that just tells them to come out. Takiyah shofar. You come in the shul, and they blow shofar. And it's supposed to fill us with a sense of awe, and it's supposed to wake us up, and it's supposed to bring us by. And a lot of people just go, oh, that guy's turning blue. You know? Is he going to make it? He's not going to make it. They're going to have a friend. Eh, substitute, you know. You know, listen, who's ready to, the spittles coming out the other side. He's not going to make it. Bye, right? And uh, you feel like you've just seen the idea. I live in Israel, you know, in Shalim. And you see people come to the Kotel for the first time. You know? And they, they prepare themselves in their mind. I'm going to the Kotel. I'm going to walk over there. And the clouds will part, and a ray of sunlight will shine on me. Ah! The angels will sing, and I'll touch the wall, and my eyes will be filled with tears, and I'll connect with thousands of years of Jewish history, or not. Because it's basically a wall. And you get there, and it sure looks like a wall. And that guy's diving really intensely, it must be something wrong with him, I better move over, you know. I gave you money already, get out of here, you know. I wonder what this guy wants, you know? <laughs> That's a French. You know, and uh, you just, you know, I don't feel anything because you don't prepare yourself. It's not magic. A person who prepares himself and gets ready. I'm not going to tell you the answer, but the question is so great. I'm going to tell you the question. I had a Talmidah, Dr. Vina, a seminary that I teach in Israel. And uh, she calls me up. Now, I make a little mental note of the time, and I realize it's almost a wedding. Now, I knew she was getting married that day. She was one of those who sent me an invitation. It was very nice, you know. And I'm, I'm making the chenpah. I said, it's almost a wedding, you know. And I said, what's going on? She's crying. She says, to me, remember in Lasky, this is the most important day of my life. All of your sins are forgiven. You're like a new person. I'm trying to dab and I want to say to him, I want to do tshuva, I want to do something. And you know what they're doing to me? Someone's doing my hair, and someone's doing my makeup, and someone's doing this, and they keep this, and they want to keep taking pictures of me. And I just want to die, and they want to just keep taking pictures. I, what am I supposed to do? Now, forget about my answer, which was absolutely brilliant, but it's really for a different show. That'll be number 11. But, uh, only up to 10. You know, but, but do you hear the idea? The idea is, I want to be able to go into my, into my wedding, into my chuppah, where I'm prepared, where it means something to me. You know? You don't want to just walk into something. You have to be prepared. There's a reason it takes nine months to have a baby. Now, I'm sure they'll fix that, but uh, it still takes, you know, nine months. And this is terribly difficult for the husbands. There's only so much we can handle, you know? And you know, the wife is going through all of these changes and she's very emotional. We don't know what to do with that. We don't have any emotions, you know what I mean? What are we supposed to do, you know? They want to share their feelings. What are we supposed to do with that, you know? You know, and, and then all of a sudden they'll stop crying for no reason, you know? 
they hear about some village, you know, a distant Asian village that got destroyed by a typhoon and they start crying, you know. And we're like, come on, you're just distant Asians, you know what I mean? Like, you know, play yourself together, you know. But, uh, you know, it takes time for us. And I'm always amazed, I've seen this, you know, because I was with my wife for 11 births, and um, I got through most of them without any medication. And, uh, and when, the, when the baby comes out, my wife's like, oh, it was you. Because she's had a relationship with them. You know? It, 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 to women who've had children, this is perfectly normal. To men, this is the freakiest thing, you know? A woman goes like this. What's going on? The baby's kicking me. There's, there's no baby, you know? And then she'll show you. You see this leg coming out. It's like a horror movie. You know, like something's going to come out. Like, oh my gosh. Make him stop that. <laughs> you know? It's, it, there's something going on. It takes nine months to prepare. When it comes out, there's already a relationship. You know? Between the wife and the child. Not between the husband. You know? That's why I've always encouraged my wife to nurse because I don't want to come between that bond between the mother and the child at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Not because I don't want to get up, I would love to. But that means that I would be the one coming between the mother and the baby, and I just can't see myself. That's the level of sensitivity I have. Anyway. Matter of fact, that's such a great idea, but it might Honey? Anyway, it's just as well because men don't know what to do anyway, you know. This, this wife, you know, is uh, she's, she's giving the supplementary with bottles, you know, and, and you know, and taking care of the baby at night, and she has to get up in the morning, she's going to work, and she's a wreck. Now, who was sleeping? But finally, she says to the husband, says, listen, this is not fair, you know, I'm up all night, and I also work, and I, I need you now. He says, okay, what do you want? He says, I'll do one night, you do one night. He says, fine. So comes the first night, the baby wakes up, and the mother gets up, and she walks with him, and gives him a bottle, and burps and waits till he's up, puts him back to bed. Two hours later, gets up again, and she's a wreck, but she knows tomorrow she'll get a good night's sleep. Next night, the baby starts crying, and the wife, what happened, wakes up, and she sees her husband sleep, and the baby's crying, and crying. Finally, she wakes up her husband, says the baby's crying. He says, hey, I didn't tell you what to do on your night. Yeah, you gotta know people's limitations. But anyway. So we need an owl. We need an owl to prepare. And the reason we need to prepare is a very simple reason. If you follow any major court case in America, then you know you cannot walk into court unprepared. Right? This, uh, this guy in uh, Miami um, shot uh, this black fellow, and they decided that it was a racial attack, even though his face was all lacerated and all cut up, but, you know, everybody's very upset, justice wasn't done, because he got off, you know. Now, he got off, Baruch Hashem, because his lawyers did their preparation. So when the prosecutor brought in their little dummy, you know, he grabbed the dummy and started banging it on the ground, and I was like, wow, that looks pretty bad, you know. He says, could this be what happened? He says, yeah, you know. <laughs> they were prepared. They were ready. They know what people were going to say. They, they, they took it to prepare. We have to walk in prepared. We're going into a court case. Din. And there's few words that are as scary as din. 
I know I'm not him. 
I'll go the second day and see if I can get like, you know, a, you know, a, you know okay, an assistant position, you know? So he says, if you want to show you're going to mishamish the other mashallah, then he has to have somebody in shul to sing with him. you got to show up the first day so he can show that you're willing to go and help him out. Because otherwise, what's he going to do? This, uh, this big tzaddik gets up to Shemayim and he says, uh, you know, you give him a beautiful place to stay and it comes time for a meal and he gets a can, a tuna fish, a little mayonnaise, you know, a little bit of bread, you know, make a small salad. So he takes a look down in Gehenna and there's a gigantic buffet. He says, why are they getting that? I'm only getting this. And Hashem says, you know how hard it is to cook for one? You know what I'm saying? You're right. You're all mama, you know? So, uh, so the other Masholeh, you want to live in a world of din? How many people are going to be left? Why is that the best possible world? And you have to understand this. And this is something that we don't really understand today. Rav Huttner said, in Europe, people had to deal with gaiva, ga'ava. In America, people have to deal with the sense that they're not worth anything. They didn't have fancy words like self-esteem back then. Yeah? People don't feel like they are important. But there was a time when people felt that they were very important. That still exists today. I'll give you an example. I, um, I as a kid, went to Gettysburg. Uh, it was in the early 1960s. It was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. That you go to the visitor center. For those of you who are not familiar, Gettysburg was the biggest battle that was ever fought um, in North America. 50,000 casualties, part of the Civil War. You know, it was uh, the high water mark of the Confederacy, you know, and uh, they never recovered after that war. But, um, but the, uh, uh, we went to the visitor center and they have this big map with these little lights and they showed you, you know, here are the, the Union troops and here are the Confederate troops and how they moved in day one and day two. And, you know, I was a kid, this was like high tech back then, you know. They took us out into the battlefields, they're showing us everything, it was so exciting. You know. Postscript, I came to America, I tried to take my kids, you know. I was sitting in the room reliving my youth. I said to my kids, what did you think of that? One kid said, I didn't understand anything. The second one said, what was with all the little light bulbs? The third one said, who's the union? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring up Israeli kids, that's what's going to happen. But anyway, so, um, but okay. So when I was out there, my father told one of my older brothers to take the younger boys. I'm number five out of six. I'm the quietest. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, told one of my older brothers, take the little kids out, maybe they can find a bullet. Okay, it's a hundred years, no reason there shouldn't be a bullet. So there, you know, we were, we were kids. Sure, why not? So we started looking, you know, we started digging, and each one of us found the Civil War bullet. And, and it made us feel so good. I, I held that bullet for many years. Years and years later, my brother told me, Dad bought it in the gift shop. <laughs> he told me, have them go out and find the bullets. He dropped them in the little holes we were digging. You know? Now, why did my father just hand it to me? Because he knew that if I found it myself, it would be more valuable, because I did it on my own. All of you who have gone to Eric's trail know this. You go to some archaeological site and you find a piece of broken pottery. You look around. You slip it in your pocket. 
and you smuggle it out of the country. And you're so proud of yourself because you're smuggling antiquities. You feel like Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? I found one of the most important finds of the past 2,000 years. Now, I hate to be the one to burst the bubble, but basically, pottery was the disposable plastic cups of the past 3,000 years. And for 3,000 years, people have been living in Israel, and they all had pottery, and it all broke. And there's lots of it. You're basically a guy who came to America and found a plastic cup and stuck it in your pocket. You know what I mean? And you're so proud of that piece of pottery. Don't worry, they don't notice it. You know? they got plenty more where that came from. You know? And how do you know how old it is? Maybe it's from five years ago. <laughs> Maybe someone bought it in the gift store and it broke, you know? But uh, what does it make? You found it and that's valuable because you did it on your own. Everybody wants to do it on our own. So the same trip that we went to Gettysburg, we then went to Hershey Park, which my kids understood much better. You know? <laughs> now Hershey Park um, uh, is basically uh, an amusement park with roller coasters. And, and I, I don't appreciate roller coasters. It has no meaning to me. To be strapped into a machine that's going to hurl me upside down, backwards, 150 miles an hour, has no appeal to me. And if I want that experience, I live in there too, I can take a taxi and have the same experience. <laughs> I don't really have to wait a line for it. But just pull up, run over my foot, and you get it. And the fun already starts, you know? And they don't even make you put on a safety harness or anything, you know? So, uh, but okay. But most of my kids are insane. I have only one other kid who's relatively normal when it comes to this, you know? And we're just trying to walk to a ride that's about on our speed. It's a ski bowl place, you know, the little balls. We're trying to get there, but there's this roller coaster that goes over the path. People are sitting there with their legs hanging down, and it spins around, and there's a whole mass of humanity screaming, Aah! and the two of us are just standing there. And, and, the, and it goes by, and we were just frozen. She says, why doesn't someone help those people? <laughs> we take another step and another one comes. Ah! It's so horrible, you know? So one of my kids who was little wanted to go onto one of these death machines, you know what I mean? But you can't do it unless you can reach the clown's hand. If you're not this tall, then you have to find a different way to die. This won't be it. You know? And you see the little kids stretching. They're stretching on their tippy toes because they all want to be big. They want to be big enough to be able to do what the big people do. Because everybody wants to be big. We start out as little children. We want to dress ourselves. I want to dress myself. You don't know how. I'm going to do it anyway. Trying to put their feet into the neck of the shirt. Pull it up. Tying their shoes to each other, which are on the wrong feet anyway. I want to be big. You have a little kid in a high chair, you're trying to feed them, it works for a while. Then they grab your hand with a grip of 150 pounds an inch and twist and get the spoon. I want to feed myself. And it goes in their hair, on their face, on their shirt, everywhere but their mouth. But they don't care because they're big and they want to be big. And we go through, and we don't want training wheels on our bicycle. And we want to get a driver's license. And we want to be big. And then at some point, it stops. And I don't want to be big anymore. I want to be little. I want to be little. You know? And you see people. 
who try to be little. Now, in my generation, you you were taught to be an adult. You know? I never called any of my parents friends by their first name. It was, it was Mr. This, or Mrs. That, or Miss This. No one's, you never call an adult by their first name. I, when I say an adult, I'm talking about you in your 20s, and you're talking to somebody in their 40s, you call them Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. You, you didn't call them by their first name. You know? I saw this 20-something guy, you know, to say to one of the guys in school, I remember, you know, he was in his 50s, and he says, Erwin, uh, do you think that we can, you know, he goes, Erwin, who are you, my friend? It's Mr. So-and-so, who do you think you're talking to? You know? Oh, I'm sorry, you know? That's how I grew up. <laughs> Try that today, you know? Tell, tell you, your mother, you know, uh, uh, yes, Mrs. Uh, so-and-so, you know? I feel like you're talking to my mother-in-law. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Shani, you know? And nobody wants to be big. My father was trying to show me what a wild and crazy guy my, my grandfather was. I guess it runs in the family, you know? He says, one time he took a kid's bicycle and rode down the street. I said, so? I see guys going to polo on their bicycles. You know what I mean? What's the big deal? He says, nobody did that. Look at the pictures. Back in the 40s and 50s, you didn't walk down the street unless you were wearing a jacket, a tie, and a hat. And I'm doing a goyim. I'm doing a goyim who are construction workers. You didn't go to work like that. You, you went in a, in a, in a, a, with at least a jacket and a hat and had a tie. And then you change into your work clothes, and you change back into regular clothes before you go. You know? Public schools had a dress code. Everybody knew that. You didn't have to be Jewish to know that there were school clothes and play clothes, and you don't go to school in your play clothes. You know? I remember when you couldn't go into a restaurant without a tie. You know? Now they say without a shirt. <laughs> you have to wear a shirt. Not every restaurant, some restaurant. You know what I mean? Can't go in without barefoot or without a shirt, you know? That's pretty good. That may change soon, and there's only one thing left to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, but, but it was a sense that you conducted yourself like an adult, you know? And you, and you looked forward to being an adult. You dressed like an adult. You spoke like an adult. And now you see grown people who dress like children all the time, you know? And I'm not here to make any comments or any personal observations or anything like that. I'm sharing with you a, a, something that I saw, and you can interpret it any way you want. You know? This mother came to take her son and her daughter-in-law and their new baby out for dinner in Eretzschah. I went out to dinner with my wife, and this is one of the fun things we do. We look at the other tables and listen to them in their conversation. So, <laughs> that's where I get a lot of my material from, by the way. <laughs> I was thinking of the Maybe Rich Lion once, and this girl said something that was just so incredibly stupid, I couldn't help but I burst out laughing. And she said, oh no, I'm going to be a story. And I said, yes you will. <laughs> and she is. <laughs> That'll be number 12. But anyway, but, uh, you know, so, uh, so I'm following the scene. And anyway, so I figured out from, you know, this was the grandmother. This is the bubble. This is the safta. She's wearing a jean skirt, she's wearing sneakers and push-down socks. She's wearing a fall with a baseball cap and she's chewing gum. This is the grandmother and she looks like she's 14. So, what do you expect from the children? And by extension, what do you expect from the grandchildren? You know? So, okay, does everyone have to have a white bun? No, they don't. You know what I mean? But, uh, but what is it about being an adult that scares us? We want to be kids. We all want to be kids. 
Nobody wants to grow up and people cling to their youth. Dave Barry, uh, who's a humorist out of the Miami Herald, wrote a book called Dave Barry Turns 40. He wrote another book called Dave Barry Turns 50, and I know he never put out the 61, or at this point probably the 71. But in Dave Barry Turns 40, he says something very important. He says, now that we're 40, we have to realize. Now at 40, we have to realize we have more in common with Ward and June than we do the beaver. Now for those of you who don't appreciate the reference, the 1950s, there was a television show called Leave It to Beaver, and the parent, about an eight-year-old boy, and the parents were called Ward and June. And vice us, at the age of 40, I have to recognize I'm no longer an eight-year-old boy. But until then, it was partial. It was partial. The governor says you have to support your son until he's old enough to stand on his own two feet and make his own living. How old? Five or six, if he's a little slow. Yeah? So, I told this to somebody, and they said, well, obviously it's changed today. I said, yeah, now it's somewhere between 40 and 45. You know? <laughs> and after that, it's only because they're living off the Yerusha. You know what I mean? But, you know, but we have to take care of them. You know? I don't know. I'm taking care of more kids now that my children are married than I did when I was raising my own. Every time I turn around, there's a bunch of grandchildren there. You know? Because, you know, it's too much for us. Everything's too much for us. I can't, I can't make Shabbos. I can't make Pesach. I, everything's too hard for us. I can't take care of the kids. I can't handle anything. You know? I never heard that from my parents. You do what you have to do. You have to make a living. You have to take care of your family. I don't have any tragedy to do what you do. You know? So what? So I just stuff. You're right. You get up and do what you have to do. You know? Now everything's so hard. I can't do it. Can't somebody else do this for me? You ever hear people whining? <laughs> Why do I have to do this? Can't do this. I can't. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. Yeah, but then I feel like you don't respect me. You know, I respect you. You're my big helper. <laughs> the only worse than that is when two whiners marry each other. I can't handle the kids. I can't handle anything. What do I have to do with this? What do you think? And you wait for someone to say, Stop it, will you? Then grow up already. But nobody does. Nobody wants to grow up. Everything is too much for us. The last adult president that we had, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> his son will be speaking at the Chazanka. Everybody's encouraged to come. Um, subtly, I'd like to point out that it costs money and you should pay. And, um, uh, but in any event, uh, Ronald Reagan, there was a, a bombing that took place in Lebanon, and he got on television and said, I am the Commander-in-Chief, Ultimately, this is my responsibility, and I'm not blaming you on anybody. You know, the buck stops here. You know, I'm the president. I'm the country. I'm responsible. Bill Clinton lied under oath. That is a federal offense. You can go to jail for that, or even worse, lose your lawyer license, which is what happened to him. You know what I mean? And uh, it was, uh, you know, was, uh, you lied under oath for the president of the United States. And here was his defense, and his defense was very powerful, and it was accepted. It's not my fault that I lied. You shouldn't have asked me the question. <laughs> and if you didn't answer the question, I wouldn't have lied. Well, that's simple. Why couldn't everybody see that? If you didn't ask me the question, I wouldn't have lied. <laughs> that's the defense. It's absolutely amazing. The President of the United States wants to unveil his new program. He goes on Jay Leno. You know what I mean? That's where we go. 
You know, well, Clinton goes on a TV show and plays a saxophone. You know, these are the president of the United States. We have to be able to show ourselves of who we are and what we're capable of and what we can be. And this extends to every area of our life. When I was a kid, I remember this. You walk down the street and you fall down in front of somebody's store and you break your leg. The store owner comes out and yells at you, Stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? And then he calls your dad. Your dad comes out and says, You idiot, why don't you watch where you're going? And then they take you to the emergency room. And the doctor says, Stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? And the next time you watch where you were going. Now you fall down and you say, I'm going to sue you. Because you had a hard sidewalk. That, how could that possibly be my fault? This is your fault. Jackie Mason says, a Jew gets up every morning and says, who can I sue? Must be able to sue somebody, you know? It's got to be somebody's fault, you know? And so, of course, everybody's familiar with, you know, the woman who went into McDonald's and bought a cup of coffee and held it between her legs. And then it spilled on her and she crashed her car and she sued McDonald's for selling her a hot cup of coffee and won. That's what you see on all those cups now. Caution, contents might be hot from a hot cup of coffee. You know? And it doesn't end there. It is a warning label on a power sword. Do not use while holding the wood on your lap. That happens to be an excellent piece of advice, by the way. Someone showed me on a Superman costume, there's a warning, caution, does not allow wearer to fly. A guy was driving his Winnebago and put it on cruise control and went in the back to get a drink. And of course, careened off the, the, the road, and he wasn't killed. He sued Winnebago, because nowhere does it say you have to continue to drive the car while it's on cruise control. And he won a new Winnebago. And now it says, caution, you must continue to drive the car while it's on cruise control. Because it doesn't matter what you do, you can sue somebody, because how could it be my fault? It's not my fault. I was a mashkiach in yeshiva during a particularly dark period of my life. And uh, I had this boy, you know, usually people were coming right out of high school. This one guy had spent a year in college, so he was much more mature than everybody else. I know, because he kept telling me how he's much more mature than everybody else. Because you wouldn't have known it to meet him. But he made sure to tell me over and over again how much more, more mature he is than everybody else. And over and over again, finally I said to him, you know, let me explain to you what maturity means. Maturity means taking responsibility and acting like an adult. Dominating starts at 7.15. You don't get out of bed till 11 or 12. So why do you think you're so mature? And he said to me, perhaps you should be asking yourself, Rabbi, why you can't motivate me to get out of bed. Because ultimately this is your failure, isn't it? That was amazing. I thought that's the worst. It's not the worst. It's not the worst. My friend Pesach Krohn lives here in Kew Gardens, and um, I've learned a lot of things from him. One of the things I learned is never to name drop famous people that you know. He told me he heard that from his friend, Robert Frank. <laughs> anyway, I was on vacation with my family, and he calls me up, and he says, listen, can you do me a favor? His mother says that she has a son who has questions on religion. You know, and asked if I would talk to him. So listen, I'm not as good at this as you are. You, you answer questions on religion all the time. Would you come down? So I asked my wife, and my wife says, no, we're on vacation. I have all the kids here. We're supposed to go away someplace today. And I said, listen, I understand, but, you know, if I can help somebody, I'll, I'm willing to do it. So I go down, 
And, and his, the kid's question was, what's the point of life? Why don't I just kill myself? What's the point of living? Okay, happens to be so show us this question. And I said, no, because life has this, and life has that, and there's the pleasure, and there's the light of being close to Hashem, this time I got Hashem, and all the good things, because, no, nah, I don't understand. Why don't you just tell yourself? And I went over this two or three times, and finally I said, don't you understand? Even in the secular world, the person who wants to kill himself is seen as being mentally unbalanced. That's not normal. They would, they would, they would you know, send you for treatment if you wanted to kill yourself. You should see a psychiatrist. He says, I am. I'm getting medication for depression. I was like, and I look at Professor Cody, he's like, <laughs> so I'm trying to answer questions on religion for a guy who wants to kill himself because he's medically depressed. So I tried to rally as best as I could, but I was clearly out of my league, you know. I did the best I could, and okay. Uh, I called Pesach up the next day, how'd it go? He said, all right, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's doing as best as he can, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. So, so I'm, uh, I'm giving a shir. At the end of the shir, I finally meet the mother. She says, I'm the mother of the boy you spoke Now, I thought one of three things might happen. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you that he was on meds for depression and pretended that he had a problem with religion. Or, thank you for at least trying to tell my son. Instead, she says, it was a total train wreck. You, you don't know what you're doing. Whoa, whoa you're not a psychologist. Of course I'm not a psychologist. I'm a rabbi. I thought I was answering questions on religion. You didn't tell anybody your kid was on meds. Anyway, I couldn't get a word in because she just wanted to blame me for her problem. Now, I didn't say this, but I thought to myself afterwards, Listen, he was already being treated for depression before he met me, so it must be somebody else who pushed him over the edge. <laughs> Maybe you should think about that. You know what I mean? I didn't say it, but I thought it. <laughs> but, but then understand, when you are hit with a situation, you have one of two things you can do. You can face the issue, or you can find somebody to blame on. And unfortunately, most people choose the second one. I heard from Tzvi Kushalevsky, he said the following. Um, this mitzvah is very easy it's very close to you it's not far away it's easy to do Rashi says it's talking about the whole Torah and the Ramban says no it's talking about the mitzvah of Chuba. so Sri Kushalevsky said the mitzvah of Chuba, that's not easy you see how hard it is for people to do Chuba. and he brought an Alshad and Alshad says the following it says David Amalek was accused Granted, he didn't do it. But he was accused of killing a married woman's husband in order to marry her. And he had already had relations with her. So it's like adultery and murder and all kinds of terrible things. He doesn't lose attention. Shoal didn't kill the king of Amalek because he kept him alive so that Shmuel and Avi could kill him. And he kept alive some of the animals to bring his a carbon. And he loses the malchus. Why? Says the Alshur. Because when Shmuel says to Shoal, um, how's it going? This is great, I did everything that Hashem said. He said, you did everything? He said, yeah. He says, how come I hear sheep? Oh, there are people brought something to bring us kabanos, you know what I mean? He says, how come I see a God here? He said, well, you know, I wanted you to be able to do it. But otherwise, I did everything that Hashem said. I said, should I tell you what Hashem told me yesterday? He said, sure. He says, you're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to lead. Don't make excuses. And because of this, you're going to lose the malchus. And Shul says again, I don't understand. I did everything I should have said. And 
Shulanot Tzitz Kriya, and that's it. And then he says, "Okay, Chatasi, I see I did wrong." You know, and he says, "It's too late. You lost." Nasser Navi comes to David Melech and he tells a whole story about this guy, a rich man who steals a poor man's sheep and he shafts it. A whole story. And David says, "That's outrageous." And Nasser Navi says, "That's you, David." And David says, "Chatasi." And then there's a stop in the middle of the post. Why? Because he should have said Fatasi Obisi Pashati, but he couldn't get out the words. He was so pained. Come on, David knew the Gemara and Shabbos. Anyone who says that David did those things and making a mistake, he should have said, Nasser, what are you talking about? First of all, he was a martyr from Malthus, and he deserved to be killed. Second of all, he wasn't a refugee. Third of all, he had a hundred answers. But the Navi told me I did something wrong. Fatasi? That's it. That's it. I understand now I did something wrong. And Ritzvi said, you know what's hard about doing tshuva? Recognizing that you did anything wrong. Because we always have excuses, and we always have reasons, and we always make excuses for ourselves, and that's why din is so scary, because din means that I have to stand up and take responsibility for everything that I've done. Rabbi Zechai Zechai meets a bacha, and he says, no, it's almost Yom Kippur, you're doing tshuva? He says, sure. He says, for what? You know, Whatever. He says, well, let's go down the line. Did you serve a Bodhi Zara? No. Ah, that's good. Okay. You had a bias? No, no. Oh, good, good, good. Um, uh, did you kill anybody? No. Oh, good. Did you steal anything? No. You ever speak Russian Hara? Sometimes for a Torellus, you know, but it was worthwhile. Good thing. Huh? Bittle Torellus. Yeah, there were times that I missed learning, but it was always for, you know, a good reason. And he keeps going, he keeps going, and finally he says, that listen, nobody's perfect, you know. And when he says, he says, you're never going to do tshuva, because you never did anything wrong. He says, you didn't do the race. you never looked at somebody in, in a way that you weren't supposed to? You know, you never embarrassed anybody in public, that's like murder. You speak less an hour, you have a battle to and the only reason you didn't serve a brother is because the title was taken away from the Ajit Mezegadola, but you would have done that too. But in your mind, you never did anything wrong. One year, my mother said to me, you know, I said, I don't know, I went through that whole list of al I couldn't find any that applied to me. <laughs> I said, well, I'll give a few suggestions. <laughs> you can go through the list, talk about a few things, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's amazing. You know, you can really look at it and say, oh, it's not okay, you know. I didn't really do that, or maybe I did, not good reason, I and we make excuses because the alternative is to stand up tall, to reach the clown's hand and say, yes, I'm capable. Somebody said to me, Hashem will forgive me, right? I mean, he'll forgive me anyway. I said, yes. If you can convince him that you're such a baby that you're not capable of anything. But if you're big, if you're an adult, if you can do something in this world... The Yetzirah doesn't want to get you to sin. The Yetzirah wants to make you believe that what you do is not important. And Yenib gets up and he says, you know why I started this organization? Because I want to bring the Shia. And we, if we didn't laugh, we certainly smile. Come on. We're going to bring the Shia? Us? The people in this room are going to bring the Shia? I got news for you. If it's not us, it's not going to be anybody else. We're the people who drove around Kew Gardens looking for parking. You understand? 
We're the people who came out and came to Ashir. We're the people who are walking into Rosh Hashanah because we want to be prepared. We're the people who care. If it's not going to be us, who's it going to be? The people who don't care? The people who don't go to Shira? The people who aren't interested? Yeah, but who am I? Who's saying that? Who's the voice inside of you? Who's the one who's telling you, I'm not Avram, uh, the son of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? I'm not the son of Sarah, Rifka, Rachel, and Leah. Who's saying that? Who's the one who's saying, you know, I'm not a Tselem Elohim? Don't you understand? On Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to take you and judge you to decide if he should create the world based on you. That means he wants to see if you are Adam HaRishon before the hate. Are you on this unbelievable level? Me? Obviously you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes every year and holds him up and says, do you meet this standard? Well, if he's holding you up to that standard, that means he thinks you're capable of it. Okay, so we won't make it in Din. But how much can we make it in Din? How much can we do it on our own? How much can we deserve it? How much can we be big? How much can we say, I can't do everything, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything. And as much as I can do to deserve it and to earn it, isn't that valuable? That's something that you can do. Nobody's demanding of us to be perfect. Just to be better. Just that when we stand up there in Rosh Hashanah, see how close to the clown's hand you can get. Because the more that you deserve it and din, Yitzchak was din. Yitzchak's name is laughter. There's probably not a less funny guy in all Tanakh than Yitzchak. He's, he's laughter? Yeah, because he made it in din. That's unbelievable. You laugh at the unexpected. No one laughs at the expected. You laugh at the unexpected. You made it in Din? Someone said to me, why do we have Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur? Just have Yom Kippur. I know I'm not going to make it. You're not going to make it 100%, but maybe you'll make it 5%. Maybe you'll make it 10%. There's something you can do. I can't do everything. I can do something. I can be zoichet to something on Rosh Hashanah. But I'm able to do it on my own. The world is going to be saved by people who are willing to stand up and take responsibility. Because people care. That's why Yenid wasn't laughing, you understand? Because he turned around and he looked at hundreds and hundreds of kids who were being lost and said, okay, I'll do it. You'll do it. Why should you do it? I just have to raise tens of thousands of dollars. What's the big deal? Just get again, people who work with all these people, sure, what's the big deal? Now ask yourself a hard question. How many people in this room would do that? How many people wouldn't? That's me. You know, because I'm so afraid. I'm such a coward. But he doesn't have superpowers. He can't uh, fly. Can't see through walls. Oh, well, he can't fly anyway. But, uh, you know, he's a regular person. But you know what? He cares. And you can't change the world? Sure you can. You just don't believe it. As much as shape. He said when he was a little boy, he went to the zoo, and the lion roared, and he got afraid. And he says, can the lion break out of the cage? He says, yeah, but don't worry, he doesn't know. That's every one of us. The answer keeps telling you, you think Hashem cares if you, Davin? Do you believe that you're going to give somebody a bracha, and they're going to have a baby? Or they're going to find a shidduch? Or they're going to get better? We get lists of names to Davin for, for people who are sick. 
Somebody's tefillah is going to make them better. Why do you think it's not yours? Only because the Eitzhah tells you that. Your tefillah, your bracha, you can change the world. We're going to go into Rosh Hashanah, and we're going to pick up our head, and I'm going to say, let's see how close I get to other mashalim. Okay, maybe I don't get all the way, but I can do something. I can be better. I'm not nothing. Maybe I'm not 100%, maybe I'm 3%, 5%, 10%, but I'm something. Every year, we blow one last tekiah. Why? To confuse the sudden, because he's going to hear that and think it's the shofar Yeshua. As to Hanach Leibowitz from Chavitz Chaim, we've been pulling the same trick for 2,000 years and he keeps falling for it. Buy a machsa. Look inside. You know they're going to blow that one. And he said, the sudden's not stupid. We are. Because if you knew how close you were to making that last Akiah, the Akiah of Mashiach, then you would understand the power that you have. You can change the world. This can be the moment that changes everything. In Meretz HaShem, we will go into this Rosh Hashanah and we will stand tall. And we will be adults and take responsibility for ourselves, for our family, and for Klai Yisrael. And we will be the ones who in Meretz HaShem make that last Akiah into the Akiah Shofar Mashiach. Thank <laughs> you.